What is up, everyone? My name is Adnan Shafi, and I'm bringing you guys another episode of Pariah Nation. Last week, we had the opportunity to discuss colorism, and that was with Jamil or Doug Leboy. Uh, you might know him from TikTok, and it was a really good discussion. And today, we're going to be discussing something a bit different, and we're going to be discussing the different dimensions of racism and how it is able to actually, it's quite malleable. It'll actually be able to change shape and form depending where exactly you are. So racism can actually manifest itself through classism and different other ways. And we have another special guest for you today. We have Sasha. I can, can I call you Watson Hood? Is that how you pronounce it? Um, I think just in case yeah. Yourself. yeah? Um, I'm Sasha Woodnard. I'm 18 and I'm from Cape Town. Um, I'm a student and I like to think that I'm relatively active in a majority of movements within a South African context, um, particularly in the anti-gender based violence and Black Lives Matter movements. Those are two of my passions, um, so to speak. And yeah, I'm, I'm very, very stoked to be engaging in conversation with you today. Thank you very much, Sasha. And obviously, I'm always excited to have a South African on here because there's a lot of conversation happening in South Africa right now, especially about the topic of race. We know that South Africa was probably the last um, country on earth to ever be like desegregated legally, right? And the reason why I say legally is because we're going to go into this a bit deeper in, in terms of, you know, uh, classism and how it manifests itself. Um, but just tell us a bit about how segregation was actually ordered in terms of like the legal sector and like did segregation actually end like legally or is there still much more work to be done in relation to segregation in South Africa? Well I mean people automatically assume that when apartheid, the apartheid regime was dismantled in 1994 there was racial equality in South Africa but that could not be further from the truth. Um, I'm a firm believer that apartheid is still alive and kicking today even in 2020 and People assume that racism was only manifested in the legal structure of South Africa from 1948 until 1994. But even before 1994, I mean, there was um, relocation of black South Africans into other areas um, of South Africa because, you know, white South Africans just wanted to maintain this white supremacy in their neighborhoods. And that obviously was um, reconstructed under the apartheid era with homesteads and Bantu stands and giving the majority of South Africans, you know, less than 8% of the land. Um, and now even the legacy of apartheid, let alone ignoring the whole colonial um, legacy of South Africa, the apartheid legacy, um, has still amounted itself to racial segregation on the basis of land in um, wealth, even just, you know, employment um, and education opportunities. Just because the legislation has changed doesn't mean that the social structure of society has changed because the system is still founded in old racist tendencies. So um, it'll never be eradicated without pol policy change. Yeah, I, def I agree with you. Um, I think what most people on, uh, I'd say, what I'd define as the conservative American spectrum believe is, oh, you know, um, when the laws changed, everything changed. But anyone um, with some form of academic knowledge would be able to understand that if you build the state in such a way in which you are empowering one group and then you just suddenly change the law, it'll not have an immediate effect. And in fact, um, what actually happens with all of these laws is that they're not enough. You need to actually, as you said, change this uh, societal structure to be able to actually get rid of racism. And I'd say, obviously, when it comes to racism in particular, this is where we'll start to branch off into different ways in which it can manifest itself. Speaking from my experience in South Africa, I think the most prominent way in which racism made itself clear is that it was essentially priming itself for a classist society. And in that way, it was going to perpetuate racism, even though the legal racist um, laws were going to be repealed, the system was still going to power itself in a way in which it's actually a sustainable system. And obviously there's a different way in which that happens here in Kenya. Obviously we don't have 
um, the, the same population as South Africa, but we'll get into that later. But what I'd say is obviously having a read of the Bantu Education Act and you know, just depriving black people of the opportunity to be able to work, whether it was in white collar jobs that may have been able to pay better, um, depriving them of those opportunities for almost, I'd say like 50, 60, 70, 80 years, and then suddenly changing the laws, you were setting up black people um, for failure, right? Because what would happen is that obviously, as you said, with the homesteads, the, um, the, the townships, all these different places, those segregated there for reasons. And obviously that was built around a classist structure, which is why there's such a huge disparity between, for example, white wealth and black wealth. So tell us a bit more about how that's manifested itself in modern day South Africa in terms of living conditions, um, who gets employed by who, who owns the biggest companies, is there a space for black entrepreneurship, etc.? Yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's disgusting to actually unpack how class in South Africa has become the new name for racism. And I mean, in, I think if I remember correctly, in 2006, the Gini coefficient within the black community in South Africa was 0.64. And in 2015, um, nine years later, it was 0.65. So that's, I mean, South Africa is sitting at the highest economic inequality standard in the world, um, which is awful. And then if we look at it in terms of white South Africa, um, in 2006, I think it was 0.56 in 2006. And then in 2015, it um, was 0.51. So if anything, that gap in wealth between white and black South Africa has just grown because, of, like you said, the primed system that just relegates black South Africans to a second class economic status. And I mean, you can literally drive through any, um, any um, residential, sub suburban residential area in South Africa, and you will see a majority white individuals you know, leaving their households. But if you drive past any township, you'll see people of color. And there is no coincidence that those communities that are predominantly black are the same communities that were um, reinforced by the apartheid system um, as a, you know, as a homestead, um, like I said earlier. And it's perpetuated by, you know, the legacy of Bantu education. And there is no escaping that cycle of poverty. I mean, there's black tax, which is something that's so important to acknowledge that the now free generation, the post-1994 generation of black South Africans are struggling to navigate um, the world just based on their based on their race because they still have to, you know, pay back to their parents and their grandparents who didn't have sufficient education and they can't get a job. So you're not just looking after yourself, you're looking after, you know, your whole community, which again just sets back an entire um, demographic of your country, you know, decades, if not centuries. The same way that you can, I think everybody's seen the analogy of two people running a race and there's the white man, he's got like one hurdle to the finish line, but then the black person's got a ladder and a pond and, you know, a ton of different obstacles. There's absolutely no way you can reach eco um, economic equality without putting in policies in place, not necessarily to put more obstacles in front of the white man, but to remove the obstacles of the person of color. So it's, it's manifested in those ways where people assume, no, we don't need economic redress. We don't need compensation because there's now like legislative equality. So yeah, I think it's, it's, it's very difficult to navigate that. Um, yeah, no, thank you so much for that point. And I feel like even that topic of black tax, it's so relevant in places in which the laws were so restrictive towards black people. And people don't understand the effects of um, actually, you know, for example, like, you know, segregating people and passing laws to deprive them of opportunity. As you said, it, it really backtracks people and like deprives them of that opportunity to get even a simple basic thing like a job. Right. And when it comes down to that, that affects so many different other areas. For example, it affects um, where, where you live, for example. 
um, you might end up living in a more overcrowded area and obviously your access to health might not be, um, or your, your quality of healthcare in that area might not actually be better. Then what does that end up resulting in, of course? For example, if people aren't, they don't have access to things like contraception, for example, they might end up having larger families who they can't actually support. And even in those, uh, like, you know, um, there's higher rates of teenage pregnancy in uh, lower income areas. So obviously, <clears throat> from that, you just see it becomes an issue that automatically goes now from just legal to, you know, obviously we've gone into like the economy, now it's going into healthcare, now we're going into education in itself. And we see that once racism touches a society, it goes so deep that it penetrates the household, it penetrates the school, you know? It doesn't just stay in parliament where people can just make laws about it. And I think in Kenya, it's actually manifested a bit differently if I come to think about it. Um, I'm just gonna briefly quote one of my favorite African philosophers. Um, Franz Fanon had this idea about the national bourgeoisie. So these are essentially people who um, came to power or at least not, yeah, they came to power after independence. And from what I can remember, uh, according to his definition, during the colonial period, they were those people who were able to get education, all this different stuff. Then they came back to either rule the country, whether it was in the private or the public sector. But for them, they don't have any interest in actually furthering um, the country and like, you know, making it better. But what they're actually doing is actually becoming, as he says, a conveyor belt for capitalism and classism, essentially. And I think that's very interesting because of the way it manifested itself here in Kenya. I managed, had the opportunity to read a very good paper on racial segregation here in Nairobi. And we found out that the white people are actually given so much land, right, in specific areas. And I decided to actually look, because I was driving through this area, and my dad said, oh yeah, the land here is very expensive. And I asked dad, who used to live here? And if you actually track back the land that um, is now called Labington, for example, used to be owned by the French Catholic Church. That's why you see a lot of uh, like, you know, schools that are up here that are Christian schools. And for example, you can easily just tell that if you're a church at that time, you are receiving a lot of funding because at the same time, colonialism was running based on the idea that Christianity was also going to be spread. So what does this actually end up doing? And I suppose this is where we're going to go into like the urban planning sort of area of this, right? And we'll discuss Nairobi and of course, Cape Town and Johannesburg later, I guess. Um, when it comes to Nairobi, more areas like this, like Lavington, all these different areas were given investment. You know, there was people allowed to cultivate land. You know, there was like farms, you know, the, the houses were bigger. You had more of a legal leeway to like subdivide your properties. And now all of a sudden, even after colonialism, those are some of the most expensive pieces of land here in Nairobi. And I want to know, there's something similar manifest itself like that in South Africa, let us know about that. 100%, I mean, you can, a majority of the very wealthy neighborhoods, ironically enough, are often bordered on townships or informal settlements because, you know, it was a close labor force um, during the colonial and apartheid era. So somewhere like Hout Bay, for instance, where they have, you know, very wealthy um, estates of predominantly white individuals, if you go 100 meters down the road, there's um, a township um, that is now, sadly, a hotspot for COVID-19 because they have no infrastructure, they have no, no sanitation. But then if, again, if you go 200 meters down the road in the white, predominantly white estates, everyone is healthy, there are nearly no cases. So it's, again, to go back into you know, access to like, sanitation and healthcare, you can see who has what on what land that they were owned in, um, that, was, that was previously owned. Even in instances like the wine estates um, in further um, into the Western Cape and into the Eastern Cape, um, in the winelands, that land is so, so, so expensive, even though it is not residential land. It was owned by, you know, the early Dutch um, farmers and that, land that was essentially stolen from indigenous African um, groups had, you know, built this monetary value on the basis of slave labor. Um, and yeah, like, I'm, I'm a firm believer that racism will never be fully abolished until we restructure the capitalist system. 
because there is absolutely no way in which we can remove the idea of race, wealth, and land in particular. I mean, the whole land issue in South Africa is not unique um, to our country because there is so much um, unrest and tension between land ownership of the colonists and you know um, the in, indigenous inhabitants of the land. Um, so yeah, I mean, somewhere like Hart Bay, for instance, is a perfect microcosm of the entirety of South Africa where the same land is split. You know, you get 95% of the land going to 10% of the white people, and then the other portion is trying to provide for the masses. And the, you know, the value of each is completely disproportionate. So I think it's, it's difficult to unpack. I mean, as my stance as a, as a white individual, and I know in my neighborhood, um, I have a predominantly white, you know, upper class school down the road from me. And I can see that the people going to that school live in the neighborhood. And even though, you know, I'm not sure if it's the same in, in, um, in Nairobi and in Kenya, that those schools try to diversify, you know, their pool of students by providing scholarships and, you know, um, bursaries to children who cannot afford it but how can you give those you know those financial benefits to people who cannot afford it if they don't live anywhere near if you have a kid who's living in the township 15 kilometers away and their parents don't have you know transport because they can't afford it how can you expect them to get that same standard of education as the wealthy white kid next door so that's also something that i find incredibly harmful is that we say that there are a few bad apples on the apple tree in you know our system particularly in private schools there are a few bad apples but we're not looking at how rotten the roots of the tree are that are producing these apples even though a few of them still look good i don't know if that's a if that's a fair analogy that can be used um yeah i don't know if you can speak to that yeah that's a very powerful analogy and i am actually sympathetic to that I think obviously you made a very good point and it's linking in with the, the research that I was, I was able to read. Um, I think it was a University of Nairobi paper from 2007. And you know, this isn't a coincidence. And I, I tell people this, that I feel like my whole life after, like, you know, after coming to this realization, I just feel like my whole life has been a lie. Because you, know, you think, you know, oh, people just built houses somewhere, but people don't know the dynamics of, so like you know urban planning like you know there's obviously there's either like you know land use segregation um or there'll literally be racial segregation and each to its own like each has its own form of shaping how people actually build for example informal settlements so um definitely in south africa i see your point and i think even in the u.s um we all know ben shapiro the uh, the white uh, Jewish man who has come through as one of the most controversial people of this decade and just talked about, uh, you know, a lot of racial issues. He responded to this idea of systemic racism. And here's the one thing that I need people to understand, right? He said, like, you know, there's, there's you know, black districts and, like, you know, uh, they, have, they, they have lower property taxes because of redlining. And for those who don't know what redlining is, banks literally would draw around the city, like, red lines. Uh, around black neighborhoods, just like to to do, to like kind of say which ones are worthy of investment and which ones are not worthy of investment. So the black neighborhoods were obviously the ones that were not worthy of investment in quotes. And uh, the bad thing about that that actually started to snowball into, um, you know, obviously less property taxes for the school, uh, uh, lower levels of education, and lower standards of education. So what most people's answer to this is just move. And I always get so mad when people say that. It's like, people can't just move to get a better education. Like, why do you think they can't move in the first place? They might not be able to afford it. So how do you expect someone, just tell them to move, right? And that obviously incurring different costs, maybe that may be rent, maybe the other might even like, you know, the, uh, the main reason why people um, might actually be moving closer to workspaces is so that they don't have to spend on actual bus fare, for example and they can get them, like they prioritize the money over the child going to school because food on the table is more important than the education because that's a long-term thing. So obviously here in Kenya, it's, it's actually very interesting. 
what happened here in Kenya is, as I said, people had really like that subdivided into like white areas. And then there was kind of like an Asian-ish kind of area. So if you're a, a well-to-do Asian, specifically an Indian, then you'd be in a certain area in Kenya. Uh, I think it was more towards Eastlands for the Kenyans who know they know. And um, if you were like a lower class Indian, uh, then you would probably be put into different like areas in Eastlands as well. So the problem with this is that actually what it started to encourage was obviously informal settlements. And informal settlements started to pop out, not just anywhere, but around the outskirts of where? The places of work. So around farms, around white people's houses. So people could easily walk there and they didn't have to worry about transport, for example. And that actually started to manifest itself in what you see today in Nairobi, where there's literally informal settlements that have grown. Also, another consequence of racial segregation in Nairobi is that they started to push citizens out of the, the city, obviously because the rent rates were high and Kenyans just weren't black Africans and like black Kenyans were not being paid enough. So they had to go and start forming informal settlements on site. So even once people actually got independence, all the Kenyans came back in and they were looking for jobs because they were looking for economic security. But unfortunately, the government was not able to meet that demand. And as you see, like now you're seeing it starting to, uh, like, you know, to become like, you know, from racism, it became classism. Now you're starting to see informal settlements starting to grow within Nairobi, all because of this. And obviously, there's a bit of complacency on the side of the government um, post-independence. But this was essentially created, like the, the urban landscape in Nairobi was heavily influenced by the colonial and racial segregation. I'd love to know about the townships in South Africa, though. How people can be able to relate to this there um are the township is usually like a is it usually like a township and then let's say like a rich neighborhood or what ex, how is it exactly like you know structured in south africa it's it's ironic and ironically enough it's still um it's still so obvious to see the contrast like you said they're often positioned right next to each other or on the rare occasion the I think one of the biggest townships of um, Kailicha is positioned next to the airport. And I think anybody who's done geography will understand, you know, like the zonation of a city. So you've got like your CBD, you've got your industrial area, then residential area, and then more um, industrial, cheaper land, so to speak. The further out you go from your CV, um, from the um, business district of your capital city of whatever um, province you're living in. And a majority of the townships are in these industrial areas because it was close to work. And when, you know, as a result of the, um, the cheap labor that was used for, there was um, the cheap labor of Africans in these industries would force urbanization, particularly within the mines. So you'll find, also it's important to note that in apartheid, segregation happened based on race. So it wasn't just white individuals and people of color separated. It was black South Africans in one neighborhood, Indian South Africans in another neighborhood and colored South Africans in another one and so on and so forth. So that's why you still don't find multiracial townships um, to this day. That's why they are predominantly black or predominantly colored or predominantly Indian. Um, but at the same time, different, you know, racial demographics were granted different privileges during the apartheid system. That is why we talk about black South Africans being the most disenfranchised economically and socially. And I think another thing to speak to that is these townships often were as a result of urbanization from Bantu stands and homesteads, which were in rural areas of South Africa, where a family, um, you know, would live, particularly the male, the breadwinner of the family would be forced to move into these areas where the townships are now currently to work there, but they didn't have the space to work in these um, hostels. Um, to bring their families with them. So families were also segregated, which led to, you know, even bigger poverty within a direct family unit. Because, you know, sometimes um, the male breadwinner wasn't able to send their money back to their kids and their partners. Um, and then eventually once that whole system or the legal system was eradicated, the structure still maintained. It was an empty skeleton of what the apartheid legislation used to be. So yeah, I mean, now 
you have predominantly white industrialists taking over the industry um, next door to the townships so that there is no more work for these people who were once being paid minimum wage or at some point no wage. Um, it's, I think that also brings it into, you know, how opportunities that you get by where you are as a product of where you are links so directly to, I think we, we, we've covered it quite a bit on education and employment, but within that, it also creates such a stigma and such an association between black South Africans being lazy or being, you know, like um, dependent on social grants and on some of the aspects of redress, um, like something like BEE with university applications and quota systems. People assume that, you know, racism is over in South Africa. We, it's reverse racism to have quota systems. That's very counterintuitive because how can you expect you know your person of color down the street whose parents couldn't go to university this generation post 1994 would be the only ones to get into university not off the basis of their race so if you have minimal access to education i mean private schools in south africa go off a different curriculum to the government schools the government schools have the nsc or um DBE curriculum, which is not as well recognized as IEB, which is the private school curriculum. IEB is most likely going to get you into a university, but you can only do it if you can afford it. So ultimately, an entire group of the South African populations, um, being people of color, are unlikely to get that, you know, um, recognition for their academics. I think if if I'm not mistaken, I've um, got it here that in 2018, 81.1% of South Africans, um, white South Africans would matriculate for school um, in public schooling and only 51.6 black, black South Africans would matriculate. So if that's because, you know, like you said, it's more important to put food on the table than to send your kids to school, if you can't afford it, you can't send your kid there. If you don't have transport, you can't send your kid to school. If you don't live near a school, you can't do it. So it's not because African, um, black South Africans are lazy. It's not because they don't want their kids to succeed. It's not because they don't want the community to succeed. It's because racism and segregation in something like education is now under a different guise of class which is, I don't know if you have the same quota system or the same, you know, um, schooling system in Kenya, but it's, it's still appalling to see, I mean, 26 years after democracy in South Africa. Yeah, no, I think you brought, so, you brought up so many interesting points. I'll address the first point about education. And I guess we're going to go back to the idea that, you know, when, the one thing that I want people to take out of this is that this podcast in specific, is that you can't separate uh, racism from things like classism, for example, because they, they complement each other. And I think, honestly, the people who sat down to think about how they were going to like, you know, oppress our people, they must have been so ruthless, but they must also have been like, they must have understood the system so much. And for me, it just pains me that, you know, you think that racism is only overt until you actually start peeling back the layers and you see what's going on. And I think I'm going to use, obviously, uh, the example that you just gave us and an American example to talk about how racism actually perpetuates um, the weaknesses of capitalism and that actually drives people into poverty more often. So first of all, like you mentioned, uh, that 51% of black students in SA matriculate and compared to 81% of the white people. So I think obviously it depends, there's different factors that come into play, but obviously um, you can be able to tell that, um, for example, the black students may or may not actually be having the same standard of education. I've seen, for example, um, based on, you know, like, you know, the segregation and all these different things, if you're assuming that many people leave, uh, like they live in these like lower income areas, then obviously the property taxes might be used to fund the school, but the property taxes might not be that high. Hence, the school might be overcrowded as well, which is something that happened in apartheid as well. The classes, I think it was 50 people per classroom. It was ridiculous, right? And now, obviously, when you have overcrowding of classrooms, the lower the teacher, I mean, if you have a high teacher, I mean, low teacher to student ratio, 
right? So you have one teacher and let's say many students, right? Uh, there's a large disparity between the two. You're most likely not going to get the same advantages as someone who has, let's say, a class that's full of 20 people and they have one teacher, right? And these are very subtle things, but they really play into how education is actually administered to people and how to actually be able to prop them, like, to prop them up. And obviously, I think I do see the merits behind um, having some form of affirmative action. And I, I don't like it the way people say that, you know, um, okay, you know, uh, this affirmative action thing is reverse racism because, and I, I remember I was on, uh, somehow I ended up on conservative TikTok and I ended up going to one of the live streams of one of these big conservative creators. He said, you know, affirmative action is basically just saying that the system saying that black people are, are dumb and therefore um, they're not exactly deserving of these. They, they, we have to put them in these positions and we have to lower the bar for them because they're dumb. I don't necessarily think that's the case though. I mean, you're acknowledging that there's an inequality and affirmative action is not just because it's not just down to the person. The fact of the matter is it depends so much even on your application when you're going to university. Unconscious bias is a thing. And even speak more to that, for example, in the US, if you have a black sounding first name, you, you are gonna get 50% less callbacks to your job interview compared to a white person that has, has the same resume. And um, the research that, that itself said that they relate this to what? Actually class stratification. And they believe that this person maybe came from um, a lower income area and they might not be able to, or might not be knowledgeable enough to you know, do the job. But my, my question is, in terms of intersectionality, what causes someone to think that a black sounding name is automatically equated to you know, someone that came from a lower income area? So it's very subtle, like you know, these things. There's always a barrier for black people, especially in countries like South Africa and the US. First of all, it's uh, access to high quality education. Let's suppose you get it past that, right? You know, going to university, so, uh, subconscious bias, you know, uh, from the university, maybe in the application, they might reject you. Maybe suppose you get past that, you go into the workplace, right? There might be unconscious bias there. And let's say you want to move, let's say you get past that, you go into the workspace, you want to move up and you want to, let's say, get promoted, they might not even grant you that promotion because of your skin color. And I heard on a different podcast from one of my friends in the UK, in Cardiff, a place that I thought wasn't like too racist until I actually started reading things. Um, when she was actually promoted, one person actually asked her, like when she went to see the, the, the boss, right? They hadn't really seen each other before. They, she, she actually asked her, I said, uh, no, sorry, she, she actually asked her, right, I thought you'd be more light-skinned. <laughs> and I was like, where did that even come from? Like, you know, is this idea? And I'm like, that's overt racism. Like, she was literally expecting, like, the lighter skinned you are, the, the more, you know, um, the more, I'd say, either educated you are, or the, chance, the higher the chance that you might be a more effective worker. So all of these different things, they perpetuate this poverty and racism uses class as a tool of oppression. Uh, maybe you can comment and maybe add on to that. I mean, I'm firstly, that's appalling. Um, I mean, honestly, it's, it's, it's sad to say that I'm not surprised, but every time you hear something like that, it just, you know, kicks you in the stomach. Um, but wow, I mean, the irony is, it's not unique to South African, um, I'm going to say governance and late governance in South Africa under the national party or apartheid um, uh, system, that there would be, you know, such nuanced political discourse within leaders of a country that would instill a narrative in, you know, a population's mindset. So, I mean, just how, you know, Ronald Reagan used the war on drugs to criminalize African-Americans as drug dealers and dangerous war criminals. Um, the old South African government would do the same. I mean, if we think of P.W. Buerta's total onslaught, he would label absolutely every single black South African, particularly the ANC as you know, a communist threat, even though they had absolutely no association because in the peak of the Cold War, that's how you villainized somebody. And, you know, the association, just as blackface um, in, you know, the early, you know, 20s in the United States would re-instill um, a prejudice that being dark-skinned and having an African accent 
was, you know, unprofessional and immature and uneducated, people will, you know, whether it's conscious or not, will instill those biases within themselves. So just because, I mean, I as a white person, my name, Sasha Warden Hood, versus any of my other friends who have like African names, there's, there's absolutely no discrepancy. I mean, I have, um, I, in my research study that I did last year on how the war on drugs and mass incarceration parallel Jim Crow, I found a study in employment, like you said, that um, non-black offenders or ex-felons for drug crimes had less than half as many callbacks as white offenders. So it had nothing to do with um, the fact that somebody was an ex-criminal or not, because, you know, that would automatically be a turnoff to an employer, but white offenders who had worse crimes than black ex-offenders would get half as more callbacks. Um, and, you know, um, this, I mean, there was a quote that says that race and class status will always be interdependent the same way that sexism and um, the beauty industry and capitalism will always be interlinked. Um, and I thought that was that was an interesting analogy to use because we can always link back to you know how discrimination in um, employment links so deeply back to um, this early capitalist philosophy of you know black South Africans being used for cheap labor, unskilled labor only. So we can't associate their names with you know white collar upper class jobs, um, and you know, the whole capitalist idea that if you work harder, you'll be more successful. Black people work harder than absolutely anybody ever. And I'm saying that as a white individual. I know that there is absolutely no way that under a capitalist society, Africans, black, black Africans in particular, will reach an equitable status as white South Africans. Because to be white in, you know, a racist economy is to do absolutely bare minimum, but achieve so much. Um, and I think just to go back to what you're saying about with applications and things, particularly with university, I mean, I applied to the University of Cape Town and there you have to, you know, check your race. Was your family in, did your family ever um, have to go through a Bantu education system? Um, is your family an immigrant? What is your mother's first language? So that you can kind of get, um, you know, your, you can get compensation for, you know, your lack of, um, you know, opportunity um, within your community. And we talk about, you, you said, you can go from education, if you can push through that education barrier into a workforce, um, and potentially from there on out into every single aspect of your life. I mean, I have competed and um, engaged in sports events, particularly in tennis, which has always been a predominantly white sport internationally, regardless, just in South Africa. Um, in a provincial team of six, there are four people who are allowed on the team and there is always a spot for two. Um, they, call, and they call them PDIs, previously disadvantaged individuals, that regardless of you know, where they position in the trials, there will always be two people of color regardless in the team. And as somebody who has experience being you know, number five and being replaced with two previously disadvantaged people, I was moved down a team. And you know, just to move on to the more personal element of it, when I didn't understand what was going on and why I didn't understand why this, you know, redress and reformation was happening, I would get upset and I'd be like, you know what, it's because I'm white, I'm never going to be, I'm never going to like make it to the top part of the team. And then once I did more education, I realized that, you know what, if I go back 50 years, I would be in the team regardless. And now these individuals who have never had access to a tennis court, probably, um, their parents couldn't probably couldn't afford, you know, lessons. You can't, tennis is expensive. You have shoes, rackets, balls, absolutely everything. So it's almost, you need to have personal introspection about it. And as somebody who I always like to, to call myself a recovering racist and a recovering white feminist, because that's what everybody is at the end of the day. If you're white, I don't care how radical you think you are, you are a victim and you are guilty of having subconscious bias um, and that's kind of something that everybody needs to unlearn so I think if I can do it 
you know, with my personal experience with sport, then absolutely anybody can, you know, so. Yeah, no, thank you for that. I think obviously as a white person, so many people would be so quick to dismiss like what what you're saying, but I, I'm, I'm sitting here comfortably because I, I think that I appreciate that you do know that you have bias. And I think that even uh, what I've been able to, since we're talking about intersectionality, what I've been able to do is when you, when you start to apply, um, for example, if you're on the one end of the privilege spectrum, specifically as a black male, then this is probably the, the, the best kind of people to do this, is you're on one end of the privilege spectrum, which is like you're on the, the, the rough end of the racist privilege spectrum. When you switch roles in terms of, you know, uh, the patriarchy and all this different stuff, you're on the benefiting side of um, you know, this whole patriarchal sphere. So I think definitely does help as a, as a black male to like kind of switch those positions. For example, when you say like, when someone says like all lives matter, it's like you saying not all men are trash, <laughs> means you don't understand the issue, <laughs> right? And obviously you don't understand the purpose behind those terms. And I think obviously I'd also call myself um, someone who's, who's recovering from that uh, like you know ignorance phase and obviously we're all kind of learning so thank you for that effort and I think you brought up an amazing point I think you talked about intersectional intersectionality in terms of sexism and capitalism and all this different stuff and I want us to like really focus and I'm so sorry to keep using the U.S. as an example but I guess this is also applicable in South Africa and also at some point in Kenya during the colonial period um, what actually happened is that if you look at the way people especially males and females are treated it was very specific so males for example were usually given um the the, the routine route is like you know take them away from their family destroy the family units and what does this actually do if there's another male in that family because obviously you know there's this idea you know boys need to be the tough ones you know y'all need to be playing outside all the time um you know, and that manifests sometimes, like that manifests itself in terms of violence sometimes. So if you take the dad or the guiding um, male in that family away from the family unit, especially in that patriarchal like atmosphere, you are raising a criminal. If they don't, if they, for example, don't have like you know access to education, or their mother might not have access to opportunity. And I've heard Ben Shapiro bring up this point so much. It's like, oh, but single motherhood went up during this time. It's like, oh, what happened? What also happened during that time? Mass incarceration of males, black males. Exactly. So black males are always usually the target of police violence, or they're the target of, um, you know, trying to disenfranchise and like using the patriarchal system against the black community. And of course, sometimes, you know, like, um, Franz Fanon always mentions this. I believe it was either him or Amer Césaire, uh, two different uh, philosophers from West Africa and North Africa. Um, they mentioned that if you dehumanize someone, then you dehumanize yourself. So suppose, let's say that um, this kid ends up becoming a criminal and they end up killing someone, for example, due to like gang violence on this different stuff. They've dehumanized, they've dehumanized someone else. They themselves become dehumanized and they get into a relationship. And what happens? You start to see this phenomenon in black communities of gender-based violence. And like, you know, it starts to make sense. And like, you start to see the links between all of these different systems. And it gets very interesting once you start to actually um, pile through all of the different um, you know, situations. I'm curious, what's the case in South Africa with gender-based violence? Do you think that it might actually be connected to the system of apartheid that, you know, preceded South Africa? And is that a link? Am I making too much of a jump? What do you think? No, not at all. I think you've, you've hit it bang on the head. And, you know, the, the analogy, not the analogy, the way that I like to put it is racist white people only like to listen to white people and sexist men only listen to men. So, I mean, under, like you said, the mass genocide of, you, I'm going to call it mass genocide because that's exactly what it was, of black men under the apartheid regime by the, you know, South African Defense Force, in those households, how is a son going to listen to his mother in the absence of a father about how to treat a woman? So now this generation that is currently, you know, perpetuating gender-based violence are the same children who grew up without, without a dad, who grew up without a father figure. So how do we, you know, change the, um, the relationship between 
you know, a maternal figure and a son, or just between, you know, masculine and feminine bodies, because as soon as a man wants to hear, you know, a woman say like, no, you can't murder a woman, like, Snow, you're sensitive, you're this, you're that, like, I'm not going to listen to you. But when a man speaks up, you know, his cogs start to turn. Um, and when we're bringing that into a racial context, you'll find that in the townships, that's where majority of the gender-based violence is occurring. Um, you know, in those informal settlements where um, the family unit was destroyed at such like an early stage um, of somebody's life. And those are going to be the same men who grew up to potentially raise sons. And because they never had a father to teach them, they're not going to pass that same message on unless there is some sort of intervention. But at the same time, it's who has the right to do that intervention? Because, you know, as, as difficult as it might be to admit, a white individual is not going to be the right person to teach a black community, even though we, we can navigate that in a very tricky way, how, you know, white people will never be able to teach black people about racism. Men will never be able to teach women about sexism. Um, so I don't know if, is that, is that the same? in Nairobi, is there, you know, a gender-based violence pandemic there in Kenya? Um, I think generally speaking, I need to do more research on the topic, but we do have an issue of like rape. We have an issue of sexual assault. And I think at one point, I think four or five years ago, there became this whole movement of my dress, my choice. And I think one, one thing for me that, you know, obviously like living in Nairobi now, but although I've like lived in different countries, coming back and like having these discussions with other men and them just saying like, you know, men have it harder and um, they kind of getting into this, um, this ideal, for example, that for example, because men were told to go to war first and like, you know, all this different stuff that somehow, you know, men and women, if you were to wait, like, you know, up and down, about who's more oppressed, you get some sort of equal equation, which isn't necessarily true. And obviously, I don't think it's necessarily been, I think the colonial period did have something to do with it, but I also think it had to do with um, other tribal patriarchal values. But what also, I think, actually, let me rephrase that, because I, I know that we have like around 42 tribes here in Kenya. But what happened to the matriarchies in Africa? <laughs> That's a very good question that I think we need to ask. Because even when we're learning about history, it's essentially male-dominated. And I think part of the colonial mindset is that they came here with, with, a, with a heavily patriarchal, um, you know, like, you know, theology, not theology, not theology, that's a very bad way to put it. Uh, what's this? Ideology, that's the word, that's the word. Um, they came here with a patriarchal ideology, and they essentially dismantled matriarchal tribes. And, like, you, you still have it, like, you know, still have, like, you know, some nuances here and there but generally what you see is that society is departing more from this idea of matriarchy that used to be present in tribes but now it's actually becoming patriarchy and i think obviously now that's what's beginning to perpetuate this whole thing and i think obviously like as africans we have to ask ourselves like what happened like you know you can never forget about queen zinga for example from angola she was literally the one that fought for for her people's rights and she was able to fight against the Portuguese. And um, I think she eventually won and she ended up getting this treaty signed. We will never be told the stories of the Ashanti queen. I can't remember her name. Uh, I'm trying to get the name. I like literally was in my mind a second ago. Um, I think it was Asantiwa. Yes, Asantiwa. And how she defended the gold stool to the best of her abilities. We'll never learn about Morami Ajasoro. You know, that's another Nigerian female in, in, in Yoruba, you know, culture as well, they, they have a very interesting story about her. Obviously, yeah, like it's, things might be getting better, but I mean, we don't have to ask ourselves, like the fact that I can run in, like I'm in a group chat and I run into the question, why does Kenya need a women representative? Like, where does this come from? Like, even you can tell um, from the fact that pads aren't distributed to schools as, as, as well, you know, for example, and that emphasizes that, like, you know, for example, women aren't, um, graduating from school in the same way. Even like, you know, I've heard stories like, you know, women aren't being told to become engineers and all this different stuff. 
And I guess even that, that pulls into this whole idea of a colonial structure that was imported here um, from, from different places. I'm not like, coming in to say that African or specifically Kenyan tribes were not in some way patriarchal. I'm just saying that in, in many senses, we lost our matriarchal, matriarchal like, you know, uh, tribal ideologies once the colonizers did come. And that's something that we need to take note of. Yeah, I mean, you've, you've hit the nail on the head. And I think you, you talk about the people who write the history and we often have such an erasure of women in history the same way that there's an erasure of African history before the colonial era that nobody ever hears about, you know, the kingdom of Mar like the Mali kingdom. Nobody hears about anything. You know, people think the inception of history was when, you know, the first European colonists had fought on Africa. And that's incredibly problematic. But it's important to remember, like I said, the intersections of it. So as difficult as it is to be a black man, as, as difficult as it is for me to be a white woman, imagine being in the crossover of being a black woman. I mean, it is, it is like, it's unfathomable, unfathomable for myself to think of the, you know, the, um, the turmoil that I experience. But I know that even timesing it by 10 won't equate to it. And, you know, it's, to bring it back to something like gender-based violence, we, um, when I was at the gender-based violence protest um, a few days ago, we were talking about the issues of intersectionality with it. And then even if you bring something like um, sexuality into it, you know, corrective rape, particularly within, you know, certain African communities that were, um, you know, infiltrated by early col colonial ideas, um, those are the environments in which black women are most likely to be, you know, raped or sexually assaulted to be, you know, corrected from their, you know, LGBTQIA plus sexuality, which is, it's, it's very disturbing. Um, and I think to go back to how difficult it is with this pandemic in South Africa, over 40% of women will be raped in their lifetime in South Africa. And they say that it's more difficult to get a job or you're more likely to get raped than you are to get a job. And you're more likely to get raped than you are to matriculate high school. I mean, to think of those statistics that 81% of people, white people matriculate and only 50% of just over 50% of black South Africans are able to matriculate. And then if you think about a majority of that 50% are male, that's, that's an, a startling number. And only one in nine of those rapes are reported. I mean, just to move slightly off the, the racial aspect of it, it's, it also goes into a whole culture thing about who is more likely to report rapes based on resources. Because if you are you know, a poor person of color in a township, you don't have the means to a lawyer and you can't afford you know, to take a day of work to go to court. Um, versus, you know, somebody who has the financial and monetary capacity to do that. So who is getting justice and who does our, you know, penal system favor? Because, um, I mean, that overlaps, you know, gender-based violence, race and class. Those are so interlinked in this instance that it's, it's so difficult to shy away from. I think for me, just having this conversation lets you know that when we talk about systemic racism, this is literally what we mean. If there's anything bad happening in society, right, the people who are most likely going to be disproportionately affected by that bad thing is most likely going to be, I'd say the worst, like, you know, is, would be black women, right? Especially in the post-colonial countries, like in Africa, and even just in general, uh, the black man, especially if you're in the West, and that's even like way worse. Right. And if we start to like cut deeper, even just in general, like as I can't imagine what black women have to go through. And like I want to go, go into like two different like detours and like probably will like wrap up after this. I'll, I'll also like issue like the I'll take I'll take note of this issue of like, you know, how black women were treated, because I did mention how black men were treated during the colonial and apartheid and slavery eras. But I think there's been different ways of, of, of objectifying women. Uh, in, you know, obviously this whole colonial and um, the slavery era. And I just posted a video on TikTok about this. And when I did the research, I was so, so shocked, right? And this is where I think racism and colorism 
and uh, I'd even say maybe maybe some form of like you know sexual assault it might in some way like you know tie in together and this obviously the fetishization of light-skinned women oh my goodness my mind blew when I found this out because I didn't believe it was real like in the U.S., they literally had, uh, especially in Lex- Lexington, Kentucky, that a specific trade for light-skinned women, and they would measure your lightness based on your parents. And um, when it came to it, I, it's called the fancy girl trade, by the way. Um, you know, these women were priced at almost five times more than the regular woman or the the laborer, right, you know? So I think obviously when you look at the projection, what are the implications of that? So obviously, yeah, like, you know, well, I'm not trying to say that, I'm not trying to downplay like house slavery because that was also bad too. But we need to recognize what was actually going on. What I was told by um, obviously our previous guest, Doug the Boy, he's from Jamaica and he's done quite a little bit of research on uh, the transatlantic slave trade and all this different stuff. And he was mentioning how even like in light-skinned slaves were separated from darker-skinned slaves. And um, when you started to project that, like for example, the house slaves might get more privileges. Like for example, they don't work longer hours, although obviously the woman might get raped once in a day, which is terrible in itself, right? Also, but the, 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 there's also like, you know, the dark-skinned slaves would be like slaving away on the fields and they were more likely to receive punishment than for example, a light-skinned slave. So even within that, although both were still being oppressed and it was absolutely terrible, it created this sort of division amongst the community. And I think that was one thing that's kind of been imported. Like, you know, and I think when you think about it, right, black men, right, I'm trying to find an answer to why, for example, I'm seeing a lot of black men hate on darker skinned women. Right. I think the fact that obviously if you are to associate yourself with a white woman, you might actually be put as a house slave, for example or you might get different privileges based on whether you associate with a white woman or not. And of course, if you have a child that happens to be light-skinned, you may be able to leech off of those um, you know, privileges that they're getting as a light-skinned slave. And maybe that's why they wanted to distance themselves from darkest-skinned women. It's a, very, it's a big stretch, but I think you see these cultures repeating themselves. It doesn't really make sense as to why. And even like, uh, to kind of like apply this into like, you know, divide and conquer, here in Kenya specifically, I can say tribalism was there before. I'd say obviously, you know, African tribes were warring against each other. That was a common thing, right? Even in West Africa. But colonialism weaponized it against us all. And um, even within segregation, there was some sort of pseudo-ethnic segregation as well. Um, And obviously, even till today, you still have, like, you know, a lot of tribalism that manifests itself in most African countries. And now, obviously, I'm going to move into the last thing. And um, we're going to be talking a bit about the working world. And um, maybe you can tell me a bit more about South Africa, and then we can do conclusions, and then we can wrap up. So I want to talk about, obviously, the model minority myth and how caste kind of really affects, you know, your white collar jobs. You talked about this very well in South Africa. Right, so obviously a black person is not really expected to be <clears throat> doing these jobs, right? Or in like, you know, corporate sector, all this different stuff. But for some reason, the way it manifested itself here in Kenya, if you were Indian, because Indian people were strategically seen as like, you know, the craftsmen and women, all this different stuff, somehow you do the job better. And that's why actually you're seeing there's a lot of Indian racism towards Kenyans, like black Kenyans here. I've heard obviously... And obviously, um, uh, I'm not trying to like, you know, hit out on any Indian communities, but I've heard of certain like, you know, apartments where they kind of segregate, right? Some, for some people, it's based on religion. And I totally understand that. Like when it comes to like, obviously, you know, cooking like meat and all that stuff, especially beef, then they might not want to be near that. I totally understand that. But there's a different type of segregation that's also happening. Where I've literally heard someone told me a story uh, where they were literally denied um, like rent, I mean, like not rent, what am I saying? Uh, they were denied the privilege to rent this place. And literally the, the answer that they basically got is certainly, right? Is that, that they were black, right? Because another person went and they were like lighter skinned and they were also they were Indian apparently, and they also got the house. So there's that division that's also being bred here in Kenya as well because of the caste system, all this different stuff. And it's even weirder once you get into the corporate world, because even like obviously you have, 
white people and Indians, for example, if you see those people, it's like, okay, these are the people that we want working for us, right? Because even when the Indians were brought over, they were built, they were brought here to build the railway. So there's always this idea that Indians have been uh, associated by, uh, associated with this idea of being productive and, you know, being smart. Um, that's been like pushed forward by the colonial system and they did get more like educational rights than black Kenyans as well. So how has this come to the fore in South Africa? Because I know that you guys also have, um, you have colored people, like most of them, some of them are Indians, some of them are Cape Malay. Um, how has that manifested itself in South Africa? It's, uh, you, uh, you've, it's, you've hit the nail on the head once again. I mean, the parallels, I mean, I'm just connecting the dots between Kenya and South Africa. Um, but particularly within the Indian community within South Africa, I mean, I think internationally, there's this kind of association and stereotype that any sort of Asian community, whether it's South Asian or East Asian, are, you know, incredibly intelligent and, and very smart. And they always have the standard of, um, you know, like a career that they need to fit. Like in South Africa, there's a massive stereotype that if you go to a doctor, they'll probably be Indian. If you have a professor, they'll probably be Indian or white. Um, whereas, you know, if you, if you look at the nature of that, I mean, like I said, Indians came to Kenya to build the railway in South Africa. Indians were brought as slaves to um, the eastern coast of South Africa to work on the sugar plantations um, under, you know, a separate sovereignty of the queen at that point. And they were one of the first, you know, groups of South Africa, although not indigenous to South Africa, still oppressed by the same white government, um, who had, you know, um, liberated themselves from their, you know, um, occupants within that KwaZulu-Natal region. So that kind of started this relationship, like if they could, you know, get rid of um, the British rule over their area, surely they can do everything. So then, you know, they got more jobs, they got better job security, and they were essentially, you know, second best white under the apartheid regime. Um, and that also goes into depth about, you know, colorism, how you would have almost a hierarchy of your racial breakdown. You'd have like your white South Africans, obviously, as, you know, white supremacy was so rampant as, you know, the top race to be, you know, during um, the, the oppressive, oppressive regime. And then you'd have your Indian community and then your colored community, which, um, I think it just to clarify, it is not the same term colored as in the United States. Colored isn't a completely different ethnic, ethnic group and racial group within South Africa who has their um, completely new culture. Who actually, it's, it's so interesting if we look at how the colored group of South Africa, um, you know, became to exist because if it weren't for colonialization, they would just be lighter skinned Africans. But as harsh it is, as it is to realize, the colored community and the colored population are essentially just a product of, you know, mass rape and genocide between the early Khoisan, who were lighter skinned indigenous Africans, and, you know, San and further inward um, indigenous South Africans who were darker skinned, which created this new, um, you know, racial group of people which are native to South Africa. And because they are obviously lighter skinned, a majority of colored South Africans are white passing, which adds a whole new element of privilege to it and creates a bit of an identity crisis. Um, I have several friends who I speak to, they say they aren't white enough because they have some sort of white family, you know, a few generations behind who, you know, had raped their great grandmother and hence had their parents who are now, you know, unsure of their identity. Um, and then you would move to, you know, the black South Africans who were, you know, the most disenfranchised um, of all. And that kind of, you know, breaks down how we need to unpack colorism within racism because they're so codependent of one another. And that will impact, you know, your work and your education. Um, you know, it's, it's difficult to address, but it's necessary. As hard as it is to do. Yeah, thank you so much, Sasha. And uh, I think we'll probably move into like closing statements. I think you brought up a very interesting point about people who are white passing, but they're actually black. And I think 
that's probably going to be a different podcast because it's a whole different topic about, you know, what privileges do you get? How do these people get treated? Because, I mean, you're kind of caught in the middle of the crossfire and you don't know which side to be on in terms of like, you know, um, what's, what, am, I, am, I, am I an ally or am I just going to be someone who's also been oppressed by this? Like, what's going to be my status in society? So in closing, do you have anything um, left to say just before we end off? Um, firstly, I want to thank you for um, having me. It's been so lovely to chat with you. And I think my closing premise to absolutely everybody is something that I've had to teach myself is particularly as a white person and regardless of what privilege you may have, whether it be um, cisgender, heterosexual, racial, white privilege, um, male privilege, it is difficult to acknowledge, but you have to do it. And there is absolutely no shame in asking questions and there is no shame in admitting that you're wrong and that you're willing to learn. Um, and I think that's one of the biggest reasons that I love to engage in these conversations because I'm not perfect and I never will be perfect. And I think I can speak for you too that nobody, nobody will, you know, sit down and have a perfect stance on things. That's why um, you need to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And I think that's, that's my biggest takeaway of this is, there will be no progress and there will be no equality if we don't have these kinds of you know, discussions. So thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to obviously come, come on to Pariah Nation um, and obviously make your voice heard and give us very, very interesting perspectives from around the continent. My, my last thing that I will say before we close off is that racism has to be unpacked in different dimensions it's affected almost every single facet of society and we need to realize that the people who actually sat down to think about this were, were doing it for political reasons and they did it to legitimize colonization they did it to legitimize you know the you know class they, they did it to protect the class um, and they also did it mainly because uh, they wanted to justify things like slavery as well so everything we know about the fabric of being a black African or like someone with African roots. If you are black, you do not live in a vacuum. The world around you and like, you know, the, the buildings, you know, the way it's, everything is structured in the city uh, to the invisible social fabric that keeps your society together. Everything is intertwined with your history. And for most black people and actually all black people, your history has mostly had to do with some form of racism or colonization. And it's very important that we interrogate this, we acknowledge this, and we use it as a tool to restructure society in a way in which that we can actually be proud of it. So thank you so much, everyone, for listening in. If you've listened in this far, go ahead, follow my TikTok, follow my Instagram, go and follow Sasha as well. Um, I'll leave those when I post the Instagram post as well. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to listen to this entire podcast. We have a lot more coming in store for you guys. So please be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. Much love and have a wonderful morning or like an afternoon or evening. Thank you to all of you. See you.